Hello, and welcome to RipperCast, your podcast on Jack the Ripper and the Whitechapel murders. This is episode 50, a conversation with Trevor Bond. I'm Jonathan Mangus, coming to you from San Diego, California, and joining the show today is Robert McLaughlin from Edmonton, Alberta, Canada, Howard Brown from Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, and Trevor Bond from Aberystwyth in Wales. On today's podcast, we'll discuss the murder of Francis Coles, as well as the Francis Coles Memorial Appeal Project, which is being spearheaded by Trevor Bond. And then we will also discuss the Cardiff Job, which is a mini-conference being held in Cardiff this summer, of which the main organizer is Trevor. Trevor Bond is a researcher who has written for the Casebook Examiner and also on the 2010 London Job for Reprologist magazine. As well as the commemorative book on the event. He is an active member of JTR Forums, of which Howard Brown is the proprietor, and he heads up the JTR Forums Debating Society, as well as running his own website, allthatyouvedone.com, on which he showcases his genealogical and geographical research into the case and other aspects of London's mysterious past. He spoke on Francis Coles at the recent UK conference, the Jack the Ripper conference that was held last year in London, and is also responsible for the Francis Coles Memorial Appeal. Thank you for being on the show today, Trevor. Good to be here. Uh, why Francis Coles? Um, it's, it is a good question. <laughs> it's one that I've uh, had to find answers for for most of the last 12 months, and I've still not really come up with the perfect one. I think a lot of people assume, first off, that because I'm interested in coals, as you say, at the moment in particular, that I must have an interest in trying to make a, make a case for her as a victim. Um, and I'm going to come straight out and say that I don't necessarily think Francis Coles was a victim of Jack the Ripper. But what you can't argue, as someone interested in the case, is that she's not got a unique position within the Whitechapel murders file, the inside or outside of the, the Ripper canon, because it is the murder that closes the file. Uh, it's the murder that, if you are to try and include it, probably raises the most questions in terms of the time gap. And I just started looking into one of the victims who hadn't had a great deal, especially at the time that I started, hadn't had a great deal written or looked into about her, really. There was obviously Neil Sheldon's research into the, can the canonical five victims, if you want to call them that, and uh, it just seemed more worthwhile to pick a victim who there was a little less known about. And for whatever reason, I just gravitated towards Cole's there's a lot of scope there, but as, a, as there is no doubt with, you know, Mackenzie, Emma Smith, and uh, even Martha Tabram still. So I wouldn't say that she is in any way a better victim to study or a more worthy victim to study than any of, any of the others, but as I say, I just saw a gap and, uh, and filled it the best that I could. Thomas Sadler was arrested for the murder of Francis Coles. Yes, yes. Sadler, I mean, as, as most of us probably know, was one of two or arguably three people to ever be put in an identity parade situation or an ID situation uh, as the Ripper, along with uh, William Grant Granger, 
and arguably uh, Kosminski, depending on your reading of the uh, provenance of the Swanson marginalia. So he's a pretty fascinating character in himself as well. And yeah, he was Coles's one of the many slight falsehoods about Coles that has been banded around for many years before and I can't take too much credit for a lot of the sort of rewriting of the Coles story that's gone on over the last 12 months because uh, Jack Keith, whose book I'm sure we'll come on to, who was looking into Coles as a complete coincidence at around about the same time. Obviously his book has gone a long way to doing it in a more public way than myself. But yes, one of the false impressions about Coles was that Sadler has always been painted as her boyfriend. Uh, he wasn't. He was a married man, lived some distance away, he was, but he was a ship's fireman. And he was on shore leave on the weekend when Coles was murdered and met up with her again in the Princess Alice. This is coming from his statement. So I think we're looking more at a, a regular client situation than a sort of romantic relationship. But yes, the Coles and Sadler spent the best part of 48 hours on a pub crawl, to all intents and purposes, around Whitechapel and Spitalfields, punctuated by a night spent in Spitalfields chambers in White's Row, and then had a rather violent quarrel a couple of hours before she was eventually murdered, when Sadler decided that Coles was responsible for him being mugged in Dean Street, despite the fact that she'd urged not to go there. And it was obviously, because he had a rather violent character anyway, and he was uh, pretty quickly apprehended by the police. Or at least they pretty quickly decided they wanted to apprehend him. It took them a couple of days to do it. Uh, and they eventually located him in a pub in East Smithfield, which, for those who don't know the area, is right by the Tower of London. It's literally a couple of streets away from Swallow Gardens. And his words, allegedly, on being arrested in the pub were, well, it took you long enough, didn't it? And a lot of the police officials, although Thomas Sadler was acquitted for the murder of Francis Coles, kind of the consensus of the opinion was that he was guilty of her murder. Isn't that right? Yes, yes. But in almost all the the memoirs and the like that do mention Coles, the overriding opinion from the police officials at the time is that Sadler was responsible. I think you've got to, and as I say, I've got no vested interest in making her out to be a victim, but I think you've got to look at that slightly uh, in view of the situation at the time and the political situation with a small p uh, with regards to the reputation of the police and look perhaps at the Catherine Rose Milet case and look at the eagerness with which the police officials there seem to have uh, taken to getting the suggestion around that it was definitely not a ripper crime and this, this, uh, this murderer was still not on the loose. So I think the idea that that there was a potential ripper crime three years after the failed apprehension, after the initial murders, I think you would expect, with a suspect as ready-made, if you like, as sadly, you would expect the police officials to be eager to go on that tack. Probably um, the only person of note who comes out and says that Coles could have been a victim, interestingly, is James Monroe. Trevor, I, I just wanted to ask you a quick question. I just wanted to, um, uh, for the benefit of uh, a lot of the readers who aren't familiar to, to Coles, 
if you could just quickly run over the circumstances under which she was found and the injuries she suffered. Uh, a lot of people okay. aren't that. A lot of the listeners probably aren't that familiar um, with yes, Francis Coles. Coles and Sadler split at approximately around about eleven in the evening of the twelfth of February, eighteen ninety-one, uh, in Florendine Street after Sadler was relieved of what was left of his money from being discharged from the ship. Uh, and as I say, they'd met up in the Princess Alice in Brushfield Street, which many people will know was owned by Mrs. Fidemont um, of uh, Jacob Eisenschmidt, potential sighting fame. Uh, they'd met up there, and as I say, they spent night in Spitalfield's chambers. Uh, Sadler bought coles or paid the remainder on a hat that coles had paid a deposit on a milliner's shop in white's row but not the white's row that most people think of that's there now the white's row which was further up towards buck's row at the time and yes they eventually split in florendine street after sadler was mugged and blamed francis coles for supposedly setting this up and Coles then disappears off the radar somewhat until she meets up with a friend who, again, through implication, most people assume to also be a prostitute, called Ellen Kalana, walking down Commercial Street. Um, they walk a little further along Commercial Street and are approached by a man who Ellen Kalana is erroneously often said to have met and known as a previous client who ill-used prostitutes in the area in a rather leather apron-style scenario. But if you actually look at the statements of the time, as reported in the press, that's not what was said. She says she didn't like the look of him. He then struck, or depending on the reports you read, attempted to strike Kalana when she declined his advances. She pleaded with Francis not to go off with the man, but she did anyway. And that's the last anyone sees of Francis Coles until Constable Thompson is coming into Chamber Street uh, on his beat, on his first night on the beat on his own as a Met policeman, and is turning the corner by Ware Swallow Gardens, which many people will know as a narrow passageway linking Chamber Street and Royal Mint Street under the railway line. It was turning the corner by there, Swallow Gardens is on rather sharp bend, and saw what he thought initially was a sort of bundle of clothes in the passageway, and on further inspection found the body of Francis Coles. Again, depending on your interpretation, um, she was either still alive or had literally just died. Constable Thompson certainly thought she was still alive, and stated in some report, some newspaper reports, or is credited with stating in some newspaper reports, that her eyes were still blinking. For that reason, and perhaps also being slightly inexperienced, because the police rules at the time he wasn't allowed to leave the body, and so he remained with the body until another policeman joined. He would later state that he heard footsteps uh, along the Royal Mint Street end of the passageway, which obviously many people have since surmised may have been a killer, but as I say, didn't pursue the fact because he couldn't or didn't believe he was allowed to leave the body. Coles's wounds were Coles's neck wound, I should say, it was very similar to the canonical rip of victims, more so in the direction of the wound than Liz Stride, for example. Um, there were no abdominal mutilations at all, no wounds apart from the 
throat wound. It was described as, depending on which doctor you rely on from the inquest, either Dr. Blackwell, who was the first doctor summoned, uh, or the police surgeon, Baxter Phillips, who's well known to us all, the wound was either the result of two or three passings of the knife, to use Blackwell's phrase, across her throat and was deep enough to cut into her larynx, a voice box. Blackwell was also of the opinion that the body had been tipped on its side deliberately, which was the way it was found, prior to the wound being inflicted in order to prevent the killer getting stained with blood. There was also a wound to the back of Coles' head, which was surmised to have been uh, the result of her being forced back against the wall, presumably at the start of the attack. There was also bruising around the throat, which both doctors agreed. There was also bruising around the throat, which both doctors agreed was almost certainly the result of a hand being used to hold the throat in place. What is your uh, object in the Francis Coles Memorial Appeal? The object's quite simple, really. It's to place some form of grave marker on Coles' gravesite. She's buried in the East London Cemetery in Plasto, uh, which is the same cemetery as Liz Stride and also the Pynchon Street Torso and Alice McKenzie. Do we know her actual location in the graveyard? We don't. This is one of the problems I'm currently grappling with. John Keith, who wrote Caratinelle, is pretty certain of his identification, which is also the identification that various other people have come up with in the past, which is, to be fair, the identification which the graveyard will give you. If you go and ask at the office they've got there, they will give you coordinates and station give you a plot number and they have a map with the graveyard split into various grid references and the plot number and the grid references don't actually match up so you pay your money you take your choice but I personally feel that the grave number matches better with the location when you read the reports from the funeral how they describe the location where the body was it was on a rising ground and the trees around there fit better with where the grave number would be sequentially to the other grave numbers around it, rather than the plot number, which is what most people have used to identify the site. So we we need to do a little bit more investigation there, really. To a certain extent, does it matter as far as the placing of the plaque? Probably not, but it would be nice to tie up all the loose ends. But as, as Mark Ripper pointed out to me a while ago, it's quite likely that, for example, Stride, who's in the same cemetery and is very conspicuously, her marker is very conspicuously located on the end of a row, somewhat set apart, it's very possible that uh, some, if not all, of the sites are slightly out. I think the most important thing is that we have some way that if people are interested in these murders, if people are that way inclined, and I know a lot of people aren't, and a lot of people don't see the need for it, But if people want to go and pay their respects, they have somewhere to do that. I don't think it's necessarily essential that that place is geographically correct. I think it's more giving people the option to do that, which at the moment with Coles, as with others, including Mackenzie, they don't. Trevor, I have a question for you. A few minutes ago, you mentioned that the the Coles killer set her on um, her side before he attacked her neck, right? Yeah, yeah, turned uh, her slightly to the wall, I right. think, was the way Blackwell put okay. it. All right, uh, we know that um, some of the testimony that Sadler gave to Swanson, 
he commented that he felt that she set him up in this um, alleged row that they had. Or I believe it was on Fl- uh, Flower and Dean Street. Yeah, that's right. Um, okay, does it does it seem like an angered man or someone out for revenge would have that that presence of mind to set someone's body on the side when they attacked him, or did, does it look to you that there was some kind of deliberation before he had her killer attacked um, Coles? Do you know what I mean? Does, I does do. It, I do. Yeah. yeah. Does it seem like does it seem like the act of someone who is, uh, for one of a word, was really pissed off at her for you know? For setting her, for setting him up to be robbed and or or jumped on Flower and Dean, there does, seem, does a it seem premeditation to it, doesn't there? Right. Which doesn't tally. You're quite right. With doesn't seem to tally with the idea of someone who, yeah, is just out for revenge. Right. You've also got to remember that where she was supposed to have set Sadler up for this mugging was, as you say, Dean Street, although I think some of the reports give it as Thrall Street, but that's a fair academic distinction. Right. But that's not very far from Swallow Gardens. He's taken a long time to find her. And you've also got to remember that Sadler, by his own accounts, because, again, for people who may not be uh, 100% au fait with the events of the night, you've got to remember that Sadler's alibi for the crimes, for the murder of Coles, was that he was himself being beaten up uh, in the docks at this time, uh, about a mile and a half, two miles away. And by his accounts of that, he was pretty blind drunk by this point. So the idea that, A, it would have taken him that long to find Coles and to enact his revenge, having stormed off, uh, you know, uh, merely a few perhaps a little bit more than a few hundred yards away, but not much further. And also, as you say, that he would have the presence of mind and also the physical capability to do it because you're quite right. One of the things that Blackwell comes out with in Dr. Blackwell in the inquest is that he didn't actually believe, and he states this very clearly, he didn't believe that someone who was drunk could have held the knife well enough, for want of a better word, to inflict those wounds that efficiently. The fact that the coroner inquest stated that a person who was intoxicated could not have inflicted those wounds does have relevance into the Jack the Ripper murders. Because there's mm-hmm. always this kind of speculation that maybe the uh, perpetrator of the crimes was an alcoholic and, and was intoxicated at the time. There's always, you, you see these being kicked around on the message boards more than anywhere else Mm -hmm. but the fact that that the perpetrator might have been intoxicated when he did these things uh whether whether francis coles was a victim of jack the ripper thomas adler or or someone else or not what are your all's opinion on the perpetrator of the white chapel murders being intoxicated the coroner's opinion that a drunk person couldn't have done this uh you know Reflect Can I just on, quickly, on, before on, we come on to... Yes. Sorry, Jonathan. Quickly, before we come on to answering that question, I've just found the inquest quote here. Can I just apologize? First off, I've got the wrong doctor. It was Dr. Oxley rather than Dr. Blackwell. Um, but yes, just to go give a bit of substance to the last couple of points before we move on. As I was explaining to how this is the exact uh, summary as I 
said it out a while ago, the body was found tilted to the left, consistent with a deliberate attempt to, and this is a quote, prevent the perpetrator from being stained with blood. That's from Bobley, uh, who felt that the murderer was working from in front of the victim, although Baxter Phillips felt it was working from the right side. Uh, which, as Hal rightly said a minute ago, does seem to suggest someone who at least knows partly what they're doing and also has the presence of mind to right. to carry that through. And Oxley, the wrongly named doctor, uh, this is the quote from him, that if a man were incapably drunk, I don't think he could have produced the wound. I don't think he could control the muscles in his hand and arm sufficiently. Anyway, back to your question, Jonathan. I just thought to chip the, clear that up. Well, in my opinion, it's, you know, it's personally, you know, just a guess on on the fact of the the coroner stating that, you know, much like they could say, well, it couldn't have been, let's say, you know, a left-handed person or it couldn't have been a person that was six foot seven, you know, Um, to actually state that categorically that a person couldn't. Um, there are various levels of intoxication as well. You know, there's the falling down drunk where absolutely not incapable of anything, but there's those people that have had a few drinks that, you know, could, uh, legally be intoxicated, you know, nowadays, um, that could be perfectly able to function and, and cut up a human being. You know, I, I don't see it as a hindrance. Right. And, um, I agree with you, Robert, in that most instances of domestic violence or, um, you know, whether it be a client murdering a prostitute, there is some level, uh, a lot of the times, there is some level of intoxication going on there. So, And, you know, it, it's quite likely, at least in one of the cases that, um, or more, that uh, the Whitechapel murder or, you know, any of the non-canonical murders, um, that the victim was picked up in a pub. Uh, they were all seen variously drinking at times in pubs and were drunk on the day of their death. And it's, it's quite likely that, uh, their murderer was also drinking, you know, it, uh, it just seems, and sure. It it just seems logical to, to, to put them together, but the level of intoxication, you just can't speculate at. I think that's right. And I think, as you were saying, Robert, the, the idea that there's different levels of intoxication and, what we've got to remember is that also it's not necessarily the case that the victim and the perpetrator would have been at the same place on that scale. I think when we see people like the quote-unquote blotchy-faced man with Mary Kelly uh, walking with a pail of beer um, and we have people like Tabram's soldier clearly drinking with Tabram and Pearly Paul and his, uh, his comrade, I think you can see a parallel a lot of the time in modern cases, as Jonathan says, domestic violence or or even otherwise, where a calculating killer, um, if we're going down that road rather than the spontaneous fury angle, you know, may well accompany a woman to two, three, four pubs and have a couple of drinks, but he knows where his limit is, where he's going to be able to put his plan into action. And it'd be quite easy, I think, to with some of the women we see in this case, to keep plying them with alcohol, having the, the odd drink yourself to keep up the pretense while all the time planning to uh, keep your own mental faculties intact. That's a very good point, Trevor, because yeah. yes. um, the killer's agenda is, is obviously different than the victim. The victim just wants to drink and have a good time and 
possibly have somebody pay for those drinks when you're destitute, and and uh, the killer, yeah, would have obviously have a different agenda. Um, I just wanted to briefly comment on, um, let's say, um, we we often hear that uh, Jack is neither organized killer, disorganized killer. He's somewhere in between. You know, profilers and speculators am- amongst us uh, have have taken this view based on his killings that. And even something like that could be down to alcohol. It's a very good point. You know, how tidy the scene was, you know, depending on, let's say, his level of intoxication. You know, how many drinks he'd had that night. Mm-hmm. If, if he was, in fact, a drinker. You know, I, you know, I'm not going that far. No, it's a good point. I think the, the profiling angle, I mean, I'm going to come straight out and say that I'm not a massive fan of profiling, but the, the profiling aspect with Coles is, is also interesting. If we take, if we go back a little bit to looking at her death, I think one of the reasons that a lot of people shy away from looking at including her in the the canon, if you like, rightly or wrongly, is that the post-canonical five murders are much more difficult for a profiler to try and include, especially perhaps post-Catherine Rose Milet, because... You're quite right. If you're going down the Jack as almost a master criminal angle, which a lot of people tend to take with and also buying into the escalation theory, culminating obviously in Miller's Court with Mary Kelly. If you've got another murder three years later where he's either satisfied not committing any mutilations or he's interrupted a la stride, Suddenly you've, you've got a slightly different scenario. You've got a killer who either can stop, which as we all know for many years we were told serial killers couldn't, unless you can find someone who was locked up between December 1888 and February 1891, whether you include Mackenzie or not. You've got a killer who can stop. You've got a killer whose level of competence, which from... Tabram, arguably, or Nichols through to Kelly does seem to increase pretty dramatically, suddenly seems to be wavering again. And you're right, there are, alcohol is one of them. There are a million and one reasons that that change of how good, for want of a better word, he is at his task could change. But that presents a lot of problems for people who like to present a suspect that fits into one particular box. And um, just to touch on briefly, Trevor, what you said I think is very valid. Um, the way we look at the murders after Mary Kelly. I mean, if, if we look at Mackenzie or Coles, if, if those murders had happened in, um, let's say, uh, August or September of uh, 1888, uh, we would be looking at them in an entirely different light than we are now. Um, just because you said, just because of the time frame and these notions, let's say, of, of escalation and other factors that um, that, that sometimes uh, prejudice the you know the way we look at those later murders. Absolutely. I mean, I've always said that hypothetically, obviously, you can't divorce the events of the double event from each other, and you can't argue against the sheer coincidence if they are the work of two different hands that they did occur so close together in time and geography but i have always argued that in particular coles and mackenzie that if you were to take stride's death out of the 
context of Edo's being killed later that night, and also the fact that it occurred, obviously, as you said, in the middle of the accepted series, I don't think there would be any reason to look at Stride's candidacy as being any more certain than Coles or McKenzie, for example. I think it's purely a case of timing. I have the um, report here from Truman's Exeter Flying Post or the Plymouth and Cornish Advertiser from February 14th, 1891. And this is from the Central News, and it, it touches on what Robert and Trevor were just talking about. It says, a press association representative who has visited the scene of the murder writes, in the minds of the police officials who have been summoned to investigate the terrible murder discovered yesterday morning in Whitechapel, there is now practically no, no doubt that it is the handiwork of the terrible miscreant who has earned the name of Jack the Ripper. So early on, unless this is a total fabrication, they had linked it to the canonical murders. Yeah, I, I think they'd have been, to a certain extent, I think they'd have been daft not to. I think they had to look at the question seriously and they had to look at Sadler seriously. While it's tempting to look into the way that it was investigated and the way Sadler was investigated and perhaps say, well, they must have seen something Ripper-like about it, I think that's perhaps stretching it a little bit too far. I think inevitably in terms of the the public and the, the press selling to the public, but also, as you say, the police on the ground. I think the suggestion would obviously have presented itself, and I think that it, it would have been a definite line of inquiry, and it would have been a definite line of inquiry with Sadler. But I don't think we can necessarily read too much into that, because I think any violent death at the time, those kind of questions would have been raised. And if we look at the Sadler situation, it's, you know, it's quite possible that anyone found behaving strangely with a knife or threatening a woman, never mind possessing a knife and threatening a woman who was also a known prostitute in the right area, would have popped up on the police radar. I mean, it, that may well be the same way that Kosminski pops up if we buy the threatening his sister with a knife scenario. Sure, and, and the police were in a difficult position in the fact that you know, they had to look at each murder, you know, as an individual murder, but they also had to investigate it as possibly part of a whole. And so you, you potentially have, you know, two different uh, types of investigations. You know, you have to look at, let's say, in, in the case of Francis Coles, you have to look at uh, Thomas Sadler as, as, you know, potentially murdering Francis Coles. But then, of course, you know, you have to look into his alibi on the previous nights of the murder on, on the Whitechapel murders, which they did. Absolutely. And his alibi was pretty cast iron because he was at sea. So we, we right. can't pin those on him. I think the, the single biggest embarrassment for the police in the Coles case, and one of the, probably one of the biggest embarrassments in the whole Whitechapel murder series, was that no one was convicted of Francis Coles' murder. I think the idea that they clearly thought that there was some credibility although as I say we can't take that too far but they thought that there was some credibility in Sadler as a ripper suspect and ergo in Coles as a ripper victim and yet they then discovered that he not only could he not be the ripper but they couldn't even pin Coles's death conclusively on him. It leaves a pretty awkward loose end right at the end of the Whitechapel murder file I feel Plus the fact that Thompson claimed that he heard uh, footsteps running away while he was he had to stand near the body, that didn't Absolutely. help things either. 
Absolutely. That's one thing that I, and as I say, I have no particular agenda, although I didn't realise it's not sounding like that. But uh, one thing I feel on the plus side, if you are going to argue for Coles as a Jack the Ripper victim, is that there's a lot of talk of interruptions when we're trying to rule people in and out. Obviously, the received wisdom is that Stride's killer was interrupted either by Deemschutz or A and other. Um, the same case is made with Mackenzie. But as you say, Hal, the only case where we have a known or a, a pretty certain interruption scenario is Coles. Yeah, the other ones are speculations. With with Coles, it's 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 fairly certain, you know, it, given you know Thompson's testimony. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, interrupted, um, but able to to do the job. I mean, uh, people have argued that Nichols' murder could have been a scene to where that would have been interrupted. When we lump all of these victims into a tally of Jack the Ripper murder victims, you can make a case for a lot of them being... um, Oh, absolutely. And I think to a certain extent, it's an academic distinction to draw, really, because in every single case there has been an interruption in one way because he stopped at some point. He's either interrupted himself or he's decided that he's been there too long. You know, apart from Kelly, arguably, at some point something has stopped him. And you're quite right, unless we can pretend to get into the head of the culprit, which I, for one, certainly wouldn't want to, we can't say what his ultimate aim was. I think that's one of the drawbacks of the escalation theory is this idea that there was an ideal ripper murder in his mind all the time. It could well be that all he was trying to do in the case of Stride was killer, subduer, whatever, whereas on a different night, almost to what uh, Robert was saying a while ago on a different night for one of hundreds of other reasons, he had different different intentions. Right. I, I can't think of a single serial killer who was ever caught in the act of committing a murder um, off the top of my head. Uh, so, you know, how will well, we know... Uh, but it's, it's, it's true, Howard, and, and, and many other serial killers have, have been interrupted and been forced to leave... Uh, the scene of a crime or the scene of a body dump or or what have you and and there's been of course various differences in in other uh, victims of serial killers and in, in terms of how they were murdered and and, uh, and I've always um, you know uh, wanted people even to look at the Mary Kelly murder um, slightly different in, in a de-escalation sense um, I've always thought that you know what if Mary Kelly didn't have a room what would her murder have been like if he had just murdered her in Miller's court? You know, and uh, you know, and I, and I think it's it's a very logical argument. Uh, you know, her murder would look quite different if she were just taking him back into the court like a normal punter. Absolutely. If, if, if for example, she had no room. Absolutely. Did he? Did he just? Did he deliberately go out looking for a prostitute with a with a room because he hadn't quite? <laughs> achieved his aim with Ed Oz, or did he just strike it lucky? Right, because if he strikes it lucky, the murder looks quite different. If they're, you know, if he, if he does choose to murder her, let's say, in, in Mitre Square. I mean, Miller's Court, pardon me. And, um, and, and another thing about um, the Francis Coles murder site, uh, e- even today, um, of, of course, like all the murder sites, has changed, but 
for those who visit the East, and none of the tours, of course, go there because it's out of the way. Uh, but I encourage people to go to the Chamber Street area only because it's extremely, you know, atmospheric. You, you get quite a sense, you know, it's it, even today, uh, there's quite a lonely sense there. Oh, absolutely. And it's, it's still a very quiet road as well, which is rarer, really, with the more well-known sites. And, uh, of course, the ironic thing with Swallow Gardens is that, as you say, from the outside it's changed completely, but inside it's almost entirely unchanged. And uh, I wasn't lucky enough to get to the 2009 conference when Philip Hutchinson took a group out and uh, actually got inside Swallow Gardens. But the idea as well, when you're standing in that slightly dark portion of the street because you've got the train line going over the top just as you turn the corner into um, by West Wallow Gardens uh, was and indeed still is as you say so it's, it's dark it's quiet and you know that behind that steel shutter is still pretty much the same place the same pipe behind which the famous coins were discovered there is a, a real unusual feeling there I'd agree that uh, a lot of the more well-traveled sites don't quite give you um, you just brought up, up the coins. Uh, do you have any opinion on those coins that were found? Personally, I don't think they were anything to do with coals. And that's nothing more than a vaguely informed personal opinion. Um, but one thing that a lot of the reports from the time uh, obscure somewhat when they mentioned the coins is that they were the pipe behind which the coins were stowed was a fair distance from the body i think a lot of people assume that coles was almost slumped against the pipe with the coins just beyond the reach of her hand and uh, it wasn't quite that neat but personally from the sounds of it i don't think coles would have been carrying around a great deal of cash on her from the sounds of her behavior for the rest of the uh the rest of that weekend and in general and even had she been with a punter before i think she probably would have drunk it i think we have a with coles we have another link with nickels in that i think we have a lady living for want of a, a better way to put it almost from one punter to the next okay any more additional questions you guys might have about francis coles uh, just one more thing to ask uh, Trevor about, and you know, this will, I'm sure, help the listeners out as well. Is is we, we've only briefly talked about the book uh, Carity Now uh, by John Keefe, and and I just wanted you know Trevor to talk a bit more about that book so uh, readers can uh, listeners can go out and give it a read. Okay, absolutely. Yep. Yeah, the book is Carity Now: The Last Victim of Jack the Ripper, to give it its full title. Uh, written by John E. Keefe, came out uh, at the beginning of 2010. Uh, it's quite a slim book. It's uh, about 160 pages, roughly. Let me just check. 184 pages. Um, it's split into three sections. The first section, as in many books uh, that we all know and love, is a summary of the case, the rest of the Whitechapel murders, takes up the first 50 pages, roughly, although Keith misses out Smith, uh, Milet, and the Pynchon Street torso. All the other victims get a short chapter uh, devoted to their murders themselves. Then we have uh, the largest section in the book, 
roughly 60 pages uh, concentrating on Coles, begins with the discovery of her body and then takes us back to her childhood and early life in Bermondsey, which is in South London, in which uh, Keith corrects a number of, as I alluded to earlier, a number of uh, erroneous assumptions about Coles, which have been very helpful to everyone looking in to her life uh, and indeed I'm sure people who are looking from a more uh, murder uh, related perspective um, he gets just as an example the probably the single biggest uh, service Keith has done to people interested in Coles is that he gets the right birthday uh, it's the 18th September 1859 uh, rather than 1865 which was the birth date with which she was buried um, after her father, uh, James Coles, when he identified the body, um, he stated that he thought his daughter was about 25 or 26 years of age. Um, and they just extrapolate the birth date from there and put that on the death certificate. And for many years that has been put out as, uh, as gospel. Um, but once you've got the right date, it's much easier to find in the censuses. So... That's an excellent part of the book. And then he goes on to consider the implications within the case uh, of Coles's murder and also briefly the way in which her murder and the Ripper case in general has moved on and, and found its way into popular culture. There's a number of photographs throughout the book, um, the usual ones you'd expect, the mortuary photographs, um, Stuart Evans's photograph of the exterior of Miller's Court. Uh, there's two photos of Swallow Gardens. There's an exterior shot taken by Keith himself, which would be familiar to most of us, and then there's an interior shot, which was quite exciting for myself, um, taken by Philip Hutchison, which I think may be from the conference tour that we were talking about a minute ago. Um, there's some Illustrated Police News in illustrations, um, and there is, as I say, a photo of Coles' birthplace in Bermondsey, which is a location which may be of interest to uh, people who perhaps haven't strayed across the water with their lookings into the case. Um, as far as sort of scholars of the case, if you like, probably the most useful part of the book is the last 20 pages or so, um, where Keith includes a very... Uh, concise but very complete listing of all the witnesses involved uh, and called to the inquest of Coles. Um, also, Sadler's original police statement uh, given to Swanson, which is a fascinating read and obviously uh, much more accurate and much more useful to refer back to than the press reports. And also an interview with Sadler, which I myself hadn't come across before, which is taken from the East London Observer on the 28th of March, 1891, um, and in which Sadler comes across as a much different character uh, to that which you may get the impression of from the press reports uh, of the time. Bear in mind, this wasn't very long after he'd been... Uh, well, it wasn't very long after the murder at all, but it was not very long... It was even closer to the date of his acquittal. And he's a very ill man, if, you, if the report is to be believed. He's a very ill man, he's a very poor man. He's living uh, almost destitute uh, above a shop in Shadwell. And he certainly doesn't come across as the archetypal violent bully that 
many of the press reports give the impression of. Whether that makes him more or less likely to be a ripper is obviously uh, dependent on your, your suspect preferences. But it's, it is, it's a very, as I put it at the conference when I spoke on Coles, it's a very useful book because hopefully it should kickstart interest into Coles. The way it's packaged, the fact that the subtitle is The Last Victim of Jack the Ripper, the fact that there is a suspect angle in there. I mean, I have spoken to, uh, to John Keefe since, and he's very, he's very generous, very kind, uh, and very polite person. And, uh, but I haven't asked him uh, how much of those elements were what the book he wanted to write and how much were uh, inserted by the, uh, the publisher's wishes. I mean, we all know the problems that I think most authors who want to write purely academically on the case have with those, those kind of issues. Personally, I would have rather seen a book focused solely on Coles rather than trying to paint her as a victim of Jack the Ripper or not and trying to involve suspects. But that book probably wouldn't have got published and that book probably wouldn't have sold. So within the confines of what it is, as I say, it's a very useful book for the uh, way it summarises the events of the nights of the 13th, 14th February. And uh, some of the sources are excellent. And, you know, hopefully it's the start of the start of a bit of interest into hopefully not only Coles, but also looking into the persons of the other um, non-canonical victims. Yeah, I think that's a great point that uh, the non-canonical victims, you know, deserve uh, far more attention. Um, You know, they died brutally as well, you know, whether at the hands of the Ripper or not. Um, Their murders are just as significant. Um, you know, just finally, uh, you know, Trevor, I, I, th- I think it'd be important, um, you, you know, for those uh, who may be interested in in contributing to the Francis Coles Memorial Fund, how can they uh, get involved, people who listen to this show? Um, the links are up on Facebook and JTR forums. What I would say at the moment, because um, we collected incredibly well at the UK conference and also people very generously uh, contributing before, I'm currently having some uh, issues with PayPal, with some various uh, red tape, which I don't really want to go into with uh, PayPal and various other uh, UK uh, sort of bureaucratic procedures. So the links are up there, and we're hoping to be able to do the plaque laying. And also, because as I say, we've gone over the total that I initially envisioned um, which is brilliant for the plaque laying. Um, the other, um, the the extra uh, funds will be going to a charity, a homeless charity in Bermondsey, which is where obviously Colts was born and brought up. So the links are up there on Facebook. There's a PayPal address. For the moment, I would ask people perhaps to put it in the back of their minds as far as contributing goes and I will actually bump up the links once I've got all the current issues uh, resolved but for the moment I don't really want to while it's wonderful if people want to contribute I don't really want to be tying up anyone else's money in what at the moment is a bit of a a bit of a uh, static situation so uh, perhaps just uh, watch this space if if there's anyone out there who uh, wonderfully, and thank you very much, still wants to contribute. 
Trevor, I have a question that um, Jeff Leahy brought up on JTR Forums. Is hi, Trevor. You recently made a statement that if the later victims and Francis Coles were Ripper victims, that we might be dealing with a more modern serial killer. Could you explain that in more detail, what you meant by that? And he has a PS here. Point raised by Trevor in the DVD version of Definitive History, not yet released. God bless Jeff Leahy. Um, <laughs> yes, uh, I mean, I think uh, that was... That was uh, that was what I was touching on earlier, really, where I was saying that if we're looking at a, a killer who did also do for Mackenzie and Coles, or one or the other, but particularly with Coles, we are looking at someone who could stop, someone who had the presence of mind, I would say, to to stop and to not be drawn into any situations where he presumably risked arrest in a two, three-year period following what, when we look at the, in inverted commas, profiling from the time, which still informs a lot of people's views of who the killer was or what kind of killer we're looking for, you look at the quotes like, the, his, you know, his mind gave way after the awful glut in Miller's court, um, which perhaps is an element of almost wishful thinking. And if we're looking at someone who walked out of Miller's Court on the morning in uh, December 1888 and then presumably went about his business until 1889 and then did the same up until 1891, I would say we are looking at a, uh, a very different kind of, for want of a better word, profile. And we're looking at someone who, to go back to what Robert alluded to earlier, someone who perhaps had some more complex needs and goals than we have previously realised. Before we uh, wrap up the show, I'd like you to talk about the Cardiff job. Okay, well, yes, the Cardiff job, uh, Saturday is 16th of July uh, in Cardiff in Wales. It's a... It's started life as a, and still is to many extents, a, a small-scale sort of regional meet-up along the lines of the London jobs that uh, Neil Bell and Rob Clack, uh, among others, have been doing for a while. Um, and we're going to be exploring Cardiff in the morning, um, myself and John Reese off, uh, off of JTR Forums are going to be loosely guiding people around Cardiff, looking at some of the uh, vague links with the Ripper case, uh, the Victorian and criminal history of somewhere that, you know, maybe people haven't thought to explore before. It's be an opportunity, hopefully, for not only, you know, people to meet up who meet up at the conferences and Whitechapel Society meetings, etc., um, but also people who perhaps aren't often able to get to uh, the larger scale events who are from, you know, Wales, the west of England, etc. Um, and in the afternoon, we've been pretty lucky, really, because I say it's grown organically because I just put something out saying, look, we're going back to the pub in the afternoon and we've got a room and we've got some space to fill. So does anyone want to present anything that they're working on? And we've got some uh, some pretty exciting stuff there. Bob Hinton is going to speak on a, uh, a murder case or a... A suspected murder case uh, from South Wales that he's writing a book on at the moment. Uh, Dave James is going to speak on his research into the various vigilance committees uh, in London in 1888. 
uh, and Andrew Firth is hopefully going to give us a video preview of his uh, upcoming book. So that's all pretty exciting. And yes, in the uh, evening, there will be something pretty special going on with uh, Rippercast, which, as you say, Jonathan, I'm sure we'll uh, come on to on a, on a later date. Yes, that's uh, absolutely true. Unless you want me to talk about it now. No, we, we can save it for another podcast. Uh, God knows I need material. All right, so I guess uh, we can call it a podcast. And um, Good luck. So uh, thank you everyone night. for coming on. And that was Rippercast, episode 50, a conversation with Trevor Bond. I'd like to thank Trevor for being on the show today again. And I want to thank also Robert McLaughlin and Howard Brown. We are a podcast hosted by the website casebook.org. Its URL is www.casebook.org slash podcast. We are also available for subscription or download via the iTunes Music Store, keyword Rippercast. I want to thank everybody for listening. We'll see you next time.